0: Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that. a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett-Phillips, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Mario Nesbitt about his new book, The Workings of Diaspora, Jamaican Maroons and the Claims to Sovereignty. Dr. Mario Nesbitt, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: (laughs) So, Dr. Nesbitt, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us just a bit about yourself.
0: Okay, um, as you said, my name is Dr. Mario Nesbitt. I'm currently a visiting um, assistant, teaching professor at Syracuse University in the Department of African American Studies for 2022-2013 year. But my home institution is actually in um, Cape Coast, Ghana, and I'm a... lecturer there in the Center for African and International Studies and um, at the University of Cape Coast. So that's, um, yes, that's a little bit about myself. Um, so I, my background is actually in African, African Diaspora Studies, and I also teach classes related to that area. Currently at Syracuse, I'm teaching Caribbean since independence and a course on Pan-Africanism.
1: Awesome, wonderful. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about this book, right? So how did you come to this project?
0: Okay, so I originally, um, the project was a project from actually graduate school. So I went to, I have my PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. And I was in the Department of African American Studies. So I originally started at a dissertation project um at my um, in, in grad school and originally I wanted to look at modern communities. I was interested in moral communities and the how they you know, I was interested in how does a small group survive uh, are able to create a society, a community and uh, colonial um, you know colonization throughout the Americas. So I wanted to explore that. But I also wanted to explore what is diaspora and what work does diaspora, you know, what work does it do, you know, like. And so I wanted to explore that a bit. And um, in the work itself, I look at diaspora, like diaspora, the framing of diaspora, how diaspora is used by other scholars like Joseph Harris, Colin Palmer, and Stuart Hall. And I wanted to get a uh, a definition of diaspora, but also to how does diaspora work? Like, how does it work? Um, And what work does it do? So that was really the beginning of really working on the research project, like trying to merge those two um, ideas, really.
1: And I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about this idea of of diaspora that you have here. Uh, Could you explain how your work uh, sort of seeks to expand our understanding of diasporas through it?
0: Yes, yeah, so my work seek to expand on diaspora in the sense of like what other scholars have done. Many scholars have looked at what diaspora is and how it works and how it's practiced. Um, I wanted to look at, um, so when I was trying to find out what diaspora is, there were three things that keep coming up in terms of exploring diaspora. That's the issue of, the first issue that is in the work itself is looking at, black objection which is in other words looking at that that attempts to dehumanize um people of african descent africans and people of african descent so this so this idea keep coming up i think in all the definition of diaspora this idea of the displacement of the african and then the idea that is also associated with diaspora is often roots like the origins um african origins in terms of when we talk about African diaspora in particular, and then the issue of some sort of solidarity or conscious collective consciousness. So, in my work, what I was trying to do is to see these three elements: how they are used in um, in 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 communities of African descent, how they practice this idea of diaspora, critically practice this idea of diaspora. And the work tried to argue that when we have a community that identifies with that diaspora, they usually engage those three elements. And when they engage those elements, um, each community, I argue, engage those elements in different ways. So, for example, the Maroons have a particular narrative of their origins, which is in the African continent, but they focus on coming from Ghana. But if you look at another group of people of African descent, say, for example, Rastafari, you know, they would trace their origins to Africa, of course, but they would highlight perhaps Ethiopia in terms of their connection. So the work tried to expand and look at diaspora, like how, how does it work critically in a particular community of African descent? And what is it? Why is it used? or Why is it needed? And what, what is the goal of diaspora itself and in, in particular communities?
1: Wonderful, and, and we'll talk more about those three elements that you just brought up in just a minute. Uh, but I wonder if you could also just explain uh, to listeners who might not know what a maroon society is, and just sort of give us an overview of those of the maroon societies that you actually focus on in this work.
0: Okay, yeah. So um, in the work to myself, I explore what are you know what are maroon communities, and I try to look at the definitions, different definitions used to define Maroon communities, look at the origins of the concept. And most people know the origins of the concept come from simaroons, and it was associated with enslaved Africans leaving the plantation, indigenous people leaving the plantation. And so um, I try to look at the different definitions and scholars' definition, but I also try to look at Maroons themselves. How do they define diaspora themselves? And, um, and so I would propose the definition of diaspora link it closely to the Maroons is that it's a group of people who liberated themselves from enslavement or slavery to create they liberate themselves from slave enslavement to create autonomous communities that tried to secede from the slave plantation that they were in, they were enslaved on. And, and they seek freedom, you know, you know, for men, women and children. So that's how I basically look at Maroon communities. And in different parts of the Americas, Maroon communities uh, 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 exist, like in in many of the Spanish-speaking territories. They would call be called palinquis, in Brazil. That would be called quilombos, and in different places that we call different names. But those communities strive for different things. And what was interesting to me in the research was also too that they have Maroon communities all over the Americas. There were thousands of them, and um, and they existed in a way that made it difficult for Europeans to claim complete territorial control over spaces that they claimed that they had control over. I mean, the indigenous people did the same thing, too. But Maroon communities were the communities that tried to resist and separate themselves from um, 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 slavery. So in in particular, the Jamaican Maroons, which I l- looked at most closely, uh, I look at the Jamaican maroons. I also look at the Jamaican maroon story about their origins and what other scholars say about maroons' origins and what is in the archives in terms of the Jamaican origins. And so, within the literature, it's 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 complicated. But the earlier literature in maroon communities, you know, often focus on the archives, you know, archival well, documents and the documents written by usually people who are enemies of the maroons. So, you know, so for the Jamaican Maroons, their narrative, and I will privilege their narrative and maybe look at how it compares to other interpretation of their, uh, their origins, but the Maroons see themselves as liberated Africans, um, and some Maroons would argue that they have um, indigenous origins, depending on the group of Maroons you speak to, depending on which member of the community you speak to, some would stress I would mention indigenous origins, others would say it's only African origins. So I present that in the work, but Maroons would all trace their origins going back to the old early period of Spanish colonization, where Africans left the plantation during the Spanish colonization and created communities. And then when the British came to displace the 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 Spanish some Africans also gained their freedom during that time period and joined the Maroons in the Hill, or created their own communities. And from the Maroons' perspective, they fought the British for 80 years, and it was around 1739, where after 80 years of fighting the British, um, they signed a treaty with the um, British government. And at this point, um, you know, Five communities emerged basically in Jamaica around that time period. Because the community were in they moved, but most of the maroons they trace the clear origins of the community at this time period of the signing of the treaty, which was in the 17 late 1730s. And there were about five communities, and they included the windward maroons, which is referred to the windward maroons, and the leeward maroons. And the leeward maroons were located more under western end of Jamaica, while the Windward Maroons were on the eastern end of Jamaica. And so the Leeward Maroons were made up of mainly two communities, a community called Kojotang, uh, Cholani-Tang, and the other community was Akampang-Tang. And then on the other end, with the Windward Maroons, they had different communities where eventually the three communities that emerged was Moatang, which was New Nanny Tang, and then we have Scotts Hall, and then we have um, Charleston. Um, Crawford Tang was an earlier community that split and emerged. This is where Charleston emerged from. So there were five communities. And then the one of the communities got into a conflict with the British that produced the second Maroon War. And so that community um, was actually deported um, most of the members were deported and sent to Canada before being sent to Sierra Leone. So they were left with about four Maroon communities. And the four Maroon communities are still in existence in Jamaica. Um, the one Maroon community in the Leeward, island, the Leeward Maroons, is the Akampang Maroons still exists, while on the western end of the island, those three other communities exist. And they have their own unique formation structure. Um, which I probably get into a, a bit later. Too.
1: Sure. Yeah. And, and you you so you uh, just talked a little bit, or you touched upon the idea of sort of uh, privileging the the actual narratives that the maroons have of themselves, right? And so I, I'm I wonder what sort of new vantage points do we do we get by actually privileging the voices of the people that we're actually talking about in this case, these sort of maroon communities?
0: Yes. So so in my work, I wanted to explore how Maroon themselves practice the idea of diaspora. So I wanted to know from them how they practice the idea of diaspora, but at the same time, they practice the idea of diaspora is very much linked to their history and how they see themselves. And so I felt that, um, you know, from the oral tradition, it was helpful in a sense where when you hear the oral tradition from the Maroon, oftentimes the British narrative, as I mentioned Usually, oftentimes was privileged, the enemy of the group of people you are trying to understand and learn about. And so you would have in um, where I think oral tradition would give you an opportunity to actually get a better sense of how the, what really happened. Um, um, I see myself as an interdisciplinary scholar, so I would look at the archive, but I also want to read against the grain of the archive. I want to look at oral tradition and see what what, what the community value, what they remember and what they choose to forget and what they consider valuable and how they value things. So for me, what the, Mar- the Maroons have certain narrative where when I went to a different Maroon community, especially Akampang Town, um, they would tell you that um, we defeated the British in the war and they would give you different stories. They would tell you that we, we control our territory that we won. Was, was was like almost 25% of Western Jamaica. Like it was a large particular area where you would see different things coming from the archives or from different scholars. But you would see in the Maroon narrative, you would, you know, most people would question, like, oh, where's the evidence of this? But if you look closely up um, at the archive itself, you would see from the Maroons signed a treaty in 1730s, you would see. A 10 years wouldn't pass without the Maroon communities. So you would see in maybe 1760, the Maroons claiming land that is far away from their current settlement. Then in 1780, you would see them claiming another set of land far away supposedly from their settlement. Then you see them every every just about decade, sometime every year, sometimes you know multiple times in a year, they're claiming territories very far from where their, their, you know, their home location, their home um, settlement is, and so you have a record of the Maroons claiming these territories for like going for almost three hundred years. So you know, in the Maroon, at least, you know, for the Maroons, they have a long tradition of claiming that they own territories that seem to be outside the territory. So it showed that they actually had a long collective consciousness of, of an agreement that perhaps the British deny or uh, didn't accept. But you see it in the record, you know, when they tell you, you will be like, okay, they're making it up for today. But if you look at the, the the reports among the British, they would you would see that they claim in territory that supposedly, you know, um, belong to the British, but also to the two Maroon communities that existed was, um, in, say for example in the in the in the um, in the West it was Akampang and Kojotan. And for the Maroons, they would tell you, if you, those two communities were about eight miles apart. So the question would be, why would the Maroons make an agreement to separate their communities? You know, for them, this whole, you know, like the communities were connected. And so the communities were wider. So you get to see what the Maroons are saying could be also reflected in some of the things that the British are challenging. For example, the British would also say, you know, the idea is that the Maroon would defeat the British. So for most people, it's like, how oh, a small group of people could defeat the British, which is conquering India, conquering all the parts of the world. But if you also look again at the narrative of the British, before they signed the treaty, the British would say, if we don't sign an agreement with the Maroons, we could lose the whole island. You know, because we want, you know, we could lose the whole island, basically. And so you would see the British saying that. Then um, when the treaty is signed, they would say something similar, but 20 years after the treaty would sign, they said they came to an agreement with the Maroons in order to, you know, like, to gain peace. Then 50 years later, they would tell you, oh, the Maroons came on their knees begging for mercy, begging us to um, accept them. But you would see in British tradition, if they get hold of Maroon community and they're able to defeat Maroon communities, they usually mm-hmm. um, execute them, burn them, put their bodies, uh, you know, take off their heads and put their heads in the middle of the 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 community so other people would know not to rebel. And so it, it's usually something that is really done gruesome to the Moro community. So hearing the Maroons' perspective it give you a sense of, like, what you need to look for also in the archive itself and to see how to read against the grain and actually see what most likely was possible because you could see what was happening that perhaps the moral narrative makes much more sense than what the British is saying because they kept a record of what they're saying, but they forgot what they have said about something maybe 20 years before or 30 years before. And that information is also in the archives. So the moral community, I think, through our tradition, give you a sense of a way of really revealing the past, really understanding the past that the written records may produce distortion of that reality, and if we only look at documentations of the past, true written documents by people who are enemy of the people that we are trying to explore, it produces a distortion of that reality, and I think that oral history is a way of getting around um, those obstacles.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, And so your your second chapter is uh, titled after one of the three key elements that you sort of spoke about earlier. Uh, It's titled Black Abjection. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what Black Abjection is and in what way this uh, concept is important to the formation of uh, sort of the African diaspora and also how it relates specifically to the Jamaican uh, Maroons communities that you write about in this book.
0: Uh, Yes, so uh, Black Abjection is really... Is really an attempt to expel. Is basically objection is to expel someone from, post from humanity, from being full part of humanity. So for me, many ways, black objection is where you blacken, uh, people of African descent, up, uh, attempts of people of African descent being pushed out of humanity, where they deny full rights of humanity, basically. Whether, which exists today in many ways too where in somehow they are not full human they are not full deserving of privilege and rights of humanity so black objection is is the idea that um, black people are not you know full humans and in um, in the work of diaspora my argument or uh, what other scholars have also highlighted is the idea of the dehuman dehumanizing um of um, Africans and um, the, the attempt to push Africans out of the realm of humanity. So in doing this, I feel that this is done to all people of African descent. And so it's not the only reason I would argue, like some, some scholars might argue, that's what produced the diaspora. But I think that it helped influence why diaspora emerged because diaspora for me when you look at diaspora, look at African diaspora in particular, it's usually emerged because the people who exist cannot somehow exist within the society. For example, if you have a European, um, like Donald Trump, for example, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, his ancestors come from uh, Germany and come from the UK. And, uh, and I think his grandmother, or grandfather came from there. He comes to the United States and he's, Easily assimilated into American society and is accepted fully as an American. But someone who's of African descent might not be fully accepted as American, even though they have been here for 400 years. So, within diaspora, there's this this expelled, you know, there's this way where the person isn't accepted within the community that they're in. And so, oftentimes, they are forced to find some other location, someplace else. You know, so people often turn to Africa in terms of where the place of origins, where where do we belong, where we can fit in. So because of black objection, which I believe affect all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. And my argument to also in the work is that in the Western Hemisphere, every single one of the states in the Western Hemisphere were produced by white supremacists, whether it's the United States, Canada, whether it's Jamaica, whether it's um, Trinidad, whether it's even Brazil and these different places. So these societies were set up where Africans are not full human beings. A colonial system was set up where Africans are not full human beings. They are slaves and they are not full human beings. And the social system, the political system, the economic system reinforced that. And it created Sometimes it creates a hierarchy depending where you are. If you're in the United States, Because the Black population was relatively small, the idea is if you are mixed with Black, you become Black, so you become that outcast. But if you have some place like Jamaica or some place in the Caribbean where the white population is very small, when you mix with a white population, you start to become elevated from being Black, but you become sort of a middle area where you are sort of the buffer zone to protect the white elite structure, white racist structure against the masses of people of African descent. And so we have this structure that is created for over 300 years, where it is reinforced, where we have everyone supposed to participate in this hierarchical structure that put the Africans to the bottom and put the European to the top. And each society in the Western Hemisphere does it in a different way. And you see also where it's not only structured in a way where it's um, where it's in the colonial structure, but it's also in the social structure, where perhaps people who are, are, are perhaps perform Europeanness or whiteness, they are elevated within the society, they are given rewards and support. And when you perform Africanness or blackness, you are oppressed, you are resisted, you know, you find resistance. And so this whole society is structured in a way where it, it reflects in terms of. When you have hair that look more like European, you have good hair. When you have skin that is lighter, you have good skin. You know. So when you have dark skin, so it 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 permeates throughout the whole society. And so this kind of um, structure that was created um, is still it's still evident today. Where 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 even even in the United States, if you're a person of African descent, when you want to get insurance, you, the insurance costs more because you are black. Not because necessarily because you are black, because of um, your skin color, but the idea is that you are a person of African descent and you are higher risk because the society know you are higher risk. You have a higher chance of finding of of dying, you know, at the hands of a police officer. You have a higher chance of dying of diseases. You have a higher chance of all of these things, and this has to do with the society that was created under, uh, you know, under uh, you know true Black objection, you know, to the idea that Africans are not full human beings and they don't deserve treatments of full human beings. So I argue that diaspora emerged as a means to challenge that kind of characterization and to change the system.
1: And so another one of these three sort of essential uh, tenets that you had here was uh, connective consciousness, right? So you state in the work that Maroons make distinctive claims of origin as a means of anchoring and linking themselves to Africa. So I wonder if you could just explain to us how that takes place and the importance of this to the Maroon communities and then also how this connects to the idea of connective consciousness.
0: Okay, so... um... Yes, thank you for the question. Um, so the Maroons. Um, so part of my argument is that you could look at different communities of African descent and look, and you can see how they perform, how they engage, our practice, our critically practice. What I would say, sometimes the idea of diaspora. So, for the Jamaican Maroons, they trace their origins. To the continent of Africa generally, but they highlight certain communities, and the community they highlight the most is Akan, or uh, you know what is today Ghana. So, so the Maroons would, um So within the Maroons' uh, culture and, and um, you perhaps expression in terms of tangible and intangible cultural forms, you would see that practice or that connection in the community when you visited, visit the community itself. And one of the ways that they made these connections to the continent is through, for example, um, old tradition. In the old tradition, you would hear different narratives of the Moroon community, of their origins. And so when I went to different commun- different members of the community, they would have similar stories about their origins even though particular members of the communities don't know each other, you know, they would have a similar narrative of their own history. So it's a collective um, consciousness of that history. But they also have what is referred to, uh, in terms of the intangible cultural um, um, expressions, you have what is called the Coromante language. So in Maroon communities, uh, the language is not as strong as it used to be. And now, mainly only phrases are used, but it depends on which community you go to. Some community have um, that language is a bit stronger than it is in other communities. But many of the words, if you even go through the literature, many of the words are tied to the tree language in um, Ghana, which is um, the most popular language um, in Ghana today. So some of the words like some of the words like Abeng, makwaba, um, you would hear in Maroon communities, and uh, this is this is what they link, this is how they link themselves to their origins in Ghana with, with that language and with those words, but also to in terms of their political system. Um, in the Maroon communities, their political system is so that the leader of the community is called a colonel, but also to they used to use it as use the word chief. So it's like for them. For the Maroon community, they have um a, a council, a maroon council that governs the whole community. And so this Maroon Council and the Maroon leader, which is a colonel, our chief, he is um he he's sort of the protector, he or she's sort of the protector of the land, a whole the land on behalf of the community. So the the land is communally held. The land isn't owned by a particular individual, but is owned by the whole community, but the uh, custodian of the land is in the chief, and it's similarly done in um, African communities in Ghana. So the Maroons also trace their connection to um, Ghana and the Gold Coast in that way, in terms of how they set up their communities, Um, and within the communities, they have the council, and the council make um, decisions for the community and give direction to the communities in many ways too. And they also have spiritual practices, which which the Maroon community also tied to coming from Ghana, coming from their ancestors. So they have times where where the Maroons are practicing their religions, where the ancestors could actually visit one of the living members and be able to communicate with the living members through a particular member of the community to give the community guidance and direction. So this they also link to their African heritage and also to in um, in Jamaica, but this is also in many other islands. You have what is called Anansi stories. So for me, I grew up myself hearing Anansi stories because I grew up in the Caribbean, and um, in the Maroon community themselves, you know, I was told many Anansi stories there. And when I when I when I travelled to Ghana when I was doing my research. And now I'm living in Ghana. Um I've heard Nazi stories too, and some of the stories are actually the same as Nazi stories. You know, where, where um these stories have been told in Ghana for many centuries, and the same thing in the Caribbean. These stories have been told in the Caribbean for many centuries, and uh, and, and 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 some of the stories are very much similar. In Ghana I found that the stories have much more detail, like they would give you very detailed of the clothes that Nancy was wearing, you know, they will give you much more detail. While in the Caribbean, it would be more like shorter and more of a lesson in, in 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 overview. But in Ghana, it was much more detailed. But it's still a link to um that um African tradition, but also to the moral communities. Also argue that they have um tangible heritage, um in the community. For example, the community that is called Akampang, is actually named after the leader of the community, and the leader of the community. He the Mao communities would argue that he actually come from a name in Ghana, which is like Achampang, which is a popular name in Ghana. And so they believe that their leaders also had those names. Like they also had a community of Cholani Tang, which is also known as Kojo Tang. So that's also a popular name in Ghana, um, in terms of Kojo as a Monday born. And so they believe that these things are also tangible in terms of their community, in terms of naming. But they also have a place called, they also have the African burial ground. In Akampang, where they say that the different ancestors, like the Koromanti, the Ashanti, and the Congo are buried in these particular burial grounds in the community. The community also have 60 places they call city grounds. And these are places where you could connect with the ancestors. So they believe also this come from their African tradition, but they also have an instrument called a beng. And it's also called a horn instrument. They call it a beng in Maroon communities. And in Ghana itself, you call a horn instrument a beng. And when actually, um, when I went to um, Ghana to do my research in 2014, actually went to, the, I had a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, who was a student at the University of Ghana, and he was from the Ashanti region, and he took me to um, a celebration among the Ashantis. And when I went to the event, they had, you know, in the Jamaican Maroon community, they have a bang, and it's a cow horn and it's about maybe maybe 12 inches long. But when I went to actually Ghana itself, when the Ashanti Henny came up, the leader of the um, Ashanti people, they blew um, a bang. And um, they had some that was 12 inches long, but they had some that were like, um, you know, uh, two feet long. They had some that were three feet long. They had some that looked like they were, you know, very long and different sizes. And so you see the connection between, um, between um, the Maroons and um, different expression in uh, Ghana, so that that um, that's like you know the main way that the Maroons tie themselves to this African origins, but they tied in not only in 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 oral tradition or in words, but they they make that connection through tangible and intangible um, items or uh, cultural expression in their community, so that gives them an opportunity to really highlight that link, and they use that link to argue that. We are the first independent community of people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. We were independent before the United States gained independence, they would argue, as we gained our independence and it was acknowledged from since seventeen from the seventeen thirties. And um we encourage other Africans, other people of African descent, and we encourage Africans to come and celebrate this. This African community that we have created in the Americas, and so they use it as a means to try to connect with um, other people of African descent. So it's 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 it's, it's something that um, emerged, especially after the um, independence of Jamaica, where you know people of African descent were trying to find different ways of connecting to the African past, and the maroons saw themselves as a medium of that connection, a, a space to also come where we could discuss ways of connecting and ways of um, improving the conditions of people of African descent. So every year in the Jamaican Maroon community, they have a celebration. So each folk, four, four of the community have a celebration every year. And so Akampongtang is the community that have the largest celebration. And in their community, like for one year, when in the 90s, it was dedicated to, um, what's his name? Um, Nelson Mandela, It was dedicated to Nelson Mandela and to fight against the issue of apartheid and how Black people could organize to fight against these issues. Then other times, you know, it's different issues when it comes to the issue of reparations. They also talk about reparations. So it's, they see themselves as also a place and a platform to discuss and engage in ways that people of African descent could connect and um, improve their
1: conditions. And so you're, uh, when you brought up sort of the chief or the, or the colonel, I can't help but think about your idea of sovereignty, right? The The importance of sovereignty to uh, these Maroon societies, that they sort of view themselves as sovereign communities. And I'm just wondering, what does that mean in terms of how they view themselves in relation to sort of colonial powers um, and also to just sort of the larger African diaspora as well?
0: Okay, okay. So, uh, yeah, so let me describe the. Akampong, a little bit, perhaps describe their political structure a little bit and their argument for sovereignty. So uh, the Maroons would argue they have two two arguments, uh, two arguments, I would say, um, depending on who you speak to and what community you go to and what time you go to the community. So uh, the argument when I was there most recently was that um, we were free in Africa. We had our own community. We had our own society and we were sovereign in Africa. And when we were brought to Jamaica, we rebelled from the plantation and we recreated those communities, those sovereign communities in um, in Jamaica. So we set up African kingdoms in Jamaica. And this is where this is where our independence, our uh, sovereignty comes from, really. But when we signed the treaty in 1730, 1739, it was then the British acknowledge our sovereignty. Sometimes people argue that Maroons say they gain their sovereignty through the treaty, but many of the Maroons, some would say that, but some of the Maroons, especially the elders, would say that, no, the treaty just acknowledge our sovereignty. And then you have um, some Maroons who would say, well, we, we joined, when we rebelled from the plantation, even though they were small numbers, we joined the indigenous people, the Tainos, they were always sovereign. They have always been here. So the issue of sovereignty for some of them is that we are always being sovereign. So um, asking how we become sovereign is the question. The question is asking how how we lost our sovereignty then is the question because it always has been there. So that's some of the argument in terms of sovereignty. Um, and also how the government is structured. As I mentioned to you, there's a Maroon Council. There's also, for us... For the, um, for the book project that I did ended in 2021. So the past colonel, so there was a new colonel, a new chief that came into power office um, in 2021. So when I did the interview it was with the previous colonel um, Williams, Foreign Williams, and he had, his council war, his government had a senior council, which includes senior members of the community, And the members um, was about maybe 15 to 20 different members. And then he had a junior council that had about 10 members and this represent the youths. And then they had the full moron Council, which is sort of like a Senate um, in the community, but they are within um, the the overall governance structure of the community. And they also have, um, in Akampong in particular, from since the 1950, they have elections every five years. So every five years, different members of the community um, uh, allow the community members to vote who should become the next leader of the community. So they have been doing that from the 1950s with the government, and also to they have communally held land. The land belongs to all of the Maroons, not just um, you know the land belongs to all the Maroons, not just in, it is not owned by individual. The land is collectively um, owned, and it's something that the Maroons have fought for, you know, for 300 years. They have continually have to fight for the communal land. They do not pay taxes to the Jamaican state because they believe that land belongs to the whole community, but they also believe that the land belongs to the ancestors, the land belongs to those who are living, and the land also belongs to those who are unborn. So... If you want to do anything to the land, and this is where the issue of mining becomes an issue in Jamaica, and it also becomes an issue where Maru community actually challenge the capitalist orientation of Jamaica and the Western Hemisphere in many ways, because the idea of having communal land, and also to that, if we are going to mine or do anything on the land, we have to consult the ancestors first, we have to consult those who are living, and then we have to think about how we will affect or children who are unborn, and so for them, for the community, that's how they believe in making decisions and how to um, how to how to maintain the community. So the community is also made up of many members that do not live on the current settlement that they're living on. Many of the Maroons, some of them live far away, as New York City, um, London, um, Canada. But they believe if you could trace your ancestry to someone with Maroon blood, you're also a Maroon. So the idea of the Maroon community is also very much open. So when the Maroons have election in Akampang, people from even Kingston who are living in Kingston and living in different parts of Jamaica could participate in the election. And they're even trying to find ways of having the Maroons who are outside of Jamaica to also participate in the election. So they have particular views of the land. And in Jamaica right now, they have issues of mining of um, backside, which the Maroons and the Jamaican state and foreign companies' interest in the backside, including the United States and the interests of the Chinese, have brought the issue back to the forefront because um, um, they, are, they, are, they are interested in doing mining in 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 the areas that the maroon claim territory in so there's all there's also some other symbols of maroon um, sovereignty in terms of they first started working on a constitution in the 1940s I wasn't able to get a copy of it but they you know they started working the constitution in the 1940s and they worked on another one in the 1990s and there was one done about 10 years ago and Recently, in 2000, 2000, actually this year, there was a new constitution submitted in Maro community. They also have their own flag. Recently, they even even had a bank, but the bank is not operating on their own. They have their bank, own bank. They're talking about issues of ID and different things like that. So they have created um, 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 some, you know, level of, of 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 symbols of statehood of nationhood. Within the community, in terms of arguing for their sovereignty, and for in many ways, though how Maroons look at sovereignty, and it becomes an issue like what what is sovereignty and what does it mean. So when you go to especially Ackonbang, you wouldn't only hear the leaders talk about their sovereign; you would hear a four-year-old child talking about Maroon community sovereign. You know, so like it's it's everywhere in the community, and this is how the Maroon communities see themselves, but how they define sovereignty is not always the same way where other places maybe define sovereignty, but they see sovereignty as they having the right to decide the direction that they want to take their community, basically. You know, and so oftentimes people raise the question of, you know, control, economy, and, and, and you know, raise certain things, but for the Maroons, they don't see assistance from the Jamaican state as something that means they don't have sovereignty because they believe that you could be interdependent and still be sovereign at the same time. Because they would also argue that the globe is in many ways interdependent, you know, uh, you know, many ways interdependent, how we interact with each other. But, you know, there should be some space for us to decide what is in the best interest for us as a collective group and what is in the best interest of our community um, and how we define community should be considered. Um, so the relationship with the Jamaican state is the, the British state is actually very much complicated. Um, where in terms of in terms of in the history, you see some times where the Maroons are very much independent, dependent on a given time period, and they have other times where they face a lot of pressure from the, the colonial state, where they're able to put certain pressure the Maroon communities to act a certain way, but they have other times where the Maroon communities are able to leverage their unique um, origins and their community to push the Jamaican state or uh, the British state into a, uh, another direction. So they also believe that they have a connection, a deep connection with African diaspora. As I mentioned, when they see collective consciousness with um, other people of Africa, they, they see themselves as... One of the first freedom fighters, and they encourage um, other people to support them in the freedom struggle, where they try to support other Africans in the freedom struggle. Not that they never had, I mean, and in defining diaspora, you know, we must also look at not that they never had tension between Maroon groups and other groups of Jamaican, and not that they don't have tension between people of African descent. There is tension, but the idea is that we are somehow connected and we should work together in improving. Our conditions and so maroons more than more than ever. I think, especially in the last twenty years, they are reaching out to connect to um, other people of African descent more to to help other people of this, but also to also enhance their community.
1: And so, what what do you want readers to take away from your book?
0: Um, the main thing I would want uh, readers to take away from my book is that. Um, and there are many different ways of defining the African diaspora, um, you know, diaspora, but also the African diaspora in particular in my work. I was trying to define, my attempt to define diaspora, my goal was, original attempt was to define diaspora in general and how it would work everywhere. And it's sometimes very difficult to get because, I mean, they have so many diasporas. I mean, they even have digital diaspora. You could go to the Roman diaspora, you could go to the diaspora of communities that don't exist anymore. You have the Punjabi diaspora. There are many different diasporas. So I wanted to actually focus on, let's look at a particular diaspora, the African diaspora, not even the Ghanaian diaspora, which is connected to the African diaspora, not the Akham diaspora, which is connected to the African diaspora, not the Jamaican diaspora, but what is this idea of African diaspora? I wanted to explore and look at and if if a group of people identify with diaspora, how does it work? So my work wanted to highlight that these three elements um, is something that um, from my study, these three elements I mentioned, all diaspora that are all group that uh, consider themselves a part of the diaspora, identify with those those elements, they have the element which um, which is, which is route like some people talk about when you talk about um, Paul Gilroy it's not so much roots but routes. but I, I would argue that the, the, the routes actually have to, the routes actually the routes are connected to other routes that are connected to the roots. And so even though when you when you mention African diaspora, you have to somehow talk about Africa in some way even if you disavow. The origins of Africa, of people of African descent in, in, in Africa, you have to at least engage it in some way. So even though you might not say, Oh, I'm not African, but I'm a part of the African diaspora, it you have to you have to address it, you know, in some ways. But I think also too that African diaspora is also to I want people to get away with it's it's some way it could be viewed as a critical practice. And so if you look at how different groups of people of African descent engage those those key concepts, you could tell in many ways how, their goal of, of what it is to be, what is for the African diaspora to be liberated. For my own community, I'm arguing that they see the main way of liberating African is to create sovereignty, to create sovereign communities, while in other places, um, you know, different communities might have, like Rastafari would have a different idea of, like, what it is to create several communities. They would highlight the significance of Ethiopia, but they would highlight having a um, um, connection to God is the main way for African people to liberate themselves. So different communities have different ways of liberating themselves from Africa. But I, my argument was that to use diaspora as a tool that could explain the means that different groups of people of African descent are using to improve Black standing in the world generally. And I think that we do need different ways of um, liberating people of African descent because some of the conditions are not the same. Sometimes it varies from place to place, and so sometimes it calls for different strategies to improve the condition of people of African descent, but it's, in the end, a way of... um, bringing the full humanity of African people. As I feel, I argue that diaspora, the goal of diaspora is actually to, for people of African descent to have full humanity. Mm-hmm. In that way, in many ways, in many ways, um, diaspora, if diaspora is really lived, there might not be a need for diaspora because we are fully accepted as full human beings in this world and we are accepted, you know, and so we don't necessarily need a means, our method, to liberate ourselves because we would be all in that liberated space. Really,
1: well, Doctor Nesbitt, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, and thank you again. Uh, but I'll ask you one final question here: uh, What are you working on now?
0: Okay, so um, what I'm working on now currently, it's I'm uh, part of it is my research project in Ghana. So. I'm still working it out and I've started the project, but it's taken a lot of turns. So my next goal was actually, and I started a project some time ago, was to look at look at how Africa itself engaged the diaspora. For me, the Maroon communities was looking at a particular personal group of African descent, how they engage Africa in terms of um, looking at diaspora. But I wanted to look at how Africa itself engaged diaspora and why. And so... I wanted to focus particularly on Ghana, and also look Ghana as the cultural capital of Pan Africanism, and I also wanted to look at Ethiopia a bit, like Ethiopia as the political capital, with African Union being in Ethiopia. Of um, how do they engage diaspora? How do they define diaspora? And how do they engage diaspora? And what are the means of, um, you know, um, um, you know, and oftentimes the idea of engage diaspora is an issue of development. So I wanted. To explore that idea, but I'm also interested in how to maybe maybe look at you know global Africa, or look at how Africans and people of African descent work to improve the world in 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 general. You know how they mutually work to support each other to create a new world, to create better conditions of people of African descent. So I'm still exploring that topic, and I'm um work, trying to work it out. And um, so that's where I'm at in terms of my next research project. Um, I have a few other projects in mind, uh, but that's the main one on, on my agenda right now.
1: Yeah, that that one sounds absolutely fascinating. So I, I guess we all have to look out for that uh, when you sort of start publishing around that. I, I personally would be very interested in looking into that. Um, So, Dr. Mario Nesbitt, the author of The Workings of Diaspora, Jamaican Maroons, and the Claims to Sovereignty, I want to thank you again for being on the show. I really enjoyed it, and take
0: care. Okay, thank you.